So we are looking at these seven seals, or seven, I'm sorry, seven trumpets of God's judgments. We covered four last week. We're covering two today. Then there's going to be a break, and then we're going to see the seventh trumpet in chapter 11. Now, the first four trumpet judgments affected nature, uh, affected particularly the supply chain from which people get their produce and the industry. But the two trumpet judgments that we're looking at today are specifically given instruction. They are not to judge plans or nature. They are to, to, to harm specifically people. Notice that the last three of the seven trumpet judgments are in a special category from the first four of the trumpet judgments. They are presented not merely as trumpet judgments, but they are presented as woes. Notice with me just the last verse of chapter 8, which we did not read this morning. We read last week. But the way chapter 8 closed gives us an important uh, introduction to what's coming in this chapter and then in chapter 11. In chapter 8, verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about, about to blow. This gives us a warning that the, the trumpets that we are getting into now in, in, in today's chapter, and then in chapter 11, are significantly different than the previous four judgments. Of all these judgments that we are looking at today, like I said, these, these two today are, uh, of all the judgments we're looking at in Revelation, the ones we're looking at today are the longest. And, but they're not only the longest, they're also the strangest. Uh, they are also the most, if you will, grotesque-looking creatures. If you try to create a picture of these, you get a combination of, of animal descriptions and human descriptions with powers that cannot normally be explained by any natural means. And you may wonder, what's the point of these two judgments? What are we to learn from the message of these two trumpet judgments that are described in chapter 9? Well, before I tell you what we're going to learn, it'll be easier to us, for us to go through them. And then we're going to learn something at the end. So we're going to go through these two judgments. Uh, it's easy to, 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 to unpack or to, if you keep notes, to um, outline the sermon because there's two judgments. There's going to be two points, and then we're going to pick up some contributions, some lessons from them. The first point is the fifth trumpet, the locust-like creatures. Uh, the, the main character of this trumpet judgment, the fifth trumpet judgment, um, the main character uh, looks like a, an invasion, a horde of locust-looking creatures. When we look at their description, they're not ordinary locusts. We see that they're not natural locusts because of how they're described, because of where they come from, and because of their target mission. Not natural. This is all symbolic. Uh, but it points to actual realities that are just painted with such heavy 
strange and even grotesque language. Notice their strange description. In verse 3, they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. This shows the intensity of the pain that they can inflict. In verses 7 through 10, we get a a more detailed description about these locusts. In verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now, this is a picture of the the huge size and the readiness that that these creatures have to to attack and to to inflict pain. Now, this shows these are not normal locusts. Uh, We're dealing here with an unrealistic imagery with strange creatures. Verses 7 and 8, we read that on their heads, they, were, they had what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, in other words, long hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. Now, we should not worry about unpacking the significance of each of these descriptions. The impact that this picture has is by combining these strange elements all together in one picture. Combining animal-like features with human features is a way of saying that these creatures are not dumb. They are intelligent and cunning. They intimidate. That's not all. Verse 9, they are described as invincible in the mission that they have. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. It was a way of showing you can't fight these off. Um, and they, they, they also had uh, the power to hurt people. I'm sorry, it, they also had noise uh, of their wings. It was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. In other words, they are equipped for a fierce mission of attack. Verse 10 They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, to be stung by a scorpion creates a very, very sharp pain. And and here, the sting of the scorpion is just like a a comparison. Someone described it as a pain like that of being stabbed with a sharp needle. Now, people wonder, what about the five months? This could be explained in a number of ways, but one of the the least likely views is to actually think that, there's, that this time will be just for five literal months. Now, this is all symbolic. This is all taking the imagery of locusts. In ancient times in particular, uh, locusts were known to have a life cycle of, of five months, a season when they would come and, and devour land. could be a season of dryness that lasted about five months. The point is they are going to run their mission for the full cycle. That they're given. Whatever that cycle is. Don't think here of just calendaristic five months. Notice also where they come from. We looked a little bit at the strange description of, of how they, they appear. But, but even more strange, but also more helpful in giving us a clue of what they are, is to look at where, where they come from. And this will give us a clue what these locusts represent. They're coming from the bottomless pit. Notice verses 1 and 2. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. 
he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Now, what is the bottomless pit? This word is also described in other English translations as the abyss. Both words are, are refer to the same reality. In, in most places, in the large majority of places where the abyss or the bottomless pit is mentioned in the New Testament, it is used to refer to the demonic realm. Let me give you an example. Remember when Jesus uh, on earth was, confront, was confronted, met a man who was demon-possessed? And, and Jesus asked the, the, na- the man, what is your name? And he said, Legion. It, it was in the, the spirits in him, the demons in him. He said, we're many. And Jesus wanted to clean out this man, to take out the demons out of him. And we are told in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, that the demons begged Jesus not to command them to go into the abyss, to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is the place where demons are held bound. In the book of Revelation, the bottomless pit is also the place from which the beast will come out, as we will see in Revelation eleven seven. It's also the place where Satan will be bound up for a thousand years, as we will see in Revelation 20. So when we read in Revelation 9, too, that God has granted authority to, to an angel that's described as a star uh, and, and gave him the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit to be opened, and that this army of locusts is coming out of that bottomless pit, it means that these locust-looking creatures are demonic creatures. They're demons. It's a horde of demons described as, as locusts coming to invade the earth. And we also hear that they have a king over them. And look at verse 11. They have a, a king over them, uh, the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. And, and the, both of these names mean, both a Hebrew name and the Greek name, mean destruction or destroyer. The point of this demonic horde of locusts is that God is allowing the demonic world freedom to come upon the earth to harm the people of the earth. It's not so much that God is harming the earth, but He's allowing the demonic forces to harm the earth. Now notice this specific mission of this horde of demonic locusts. Notice in verse 4, who are they to harm? They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is one of the first clear evidences that these locusts are not going to hurt everyone. But only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, just as in the Old Testament, God made a distinction between the people uh, of Israel and the people uh, in Egypt, the Egyptians, when he brought the plagues to judge 
the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt. So now we see that God is making a distinction in this plague between His people and the people who do not belong to God. Now we have been introduced in chapter 7 uh, to the seal of God being placed on the foreheads of God's people. In chapter 7 of Revelation, uh, we saw that a vision of 144,000, 12 from each of the tribes of Israel. And I said then, and here is one evidence, that that group of 144,000, 12 from each tribe of Israel, should not be taken literally to refer only to 12,000, actual 12,000 from actual tribes of Israel, but that this was a symbolic language to describe all the people of God in their fullness. All those who do not belong to God, all those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead, all those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, including the Old Testament saints who were called to believe the Word of God, all of them are included in this picture who are of people who are going to be hurt. The rest of the people who did not have the seal of God, who, are not lo- who, 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 don't have, who don't belong to the people of God, they're liable for the torment that this army of denom- demonic creatures is coming to bring. The target of this demonic army is a people who don't belong to God. So that God allows the demonic world to inflict pain, torment on anyone who does not belong to God. Friends, if we think that it is safer or better to live life apart from God, to live life on our own, thinking that we can do this thing called our life better without God, friends, the point of this picture is to dismiss, to dispel, to break apart any kind of hope that we have a better future by just doing life on our own apart from God. I love how one commentator said, this vision, John's vision here, reflects the principle that one is punished by the very thing by which one sins. Notice the effect that these torments have on people who do not have the seal of God. Look at verse 6. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Today, we, we would do anything possible to make death flee from us. Right? We try to stay healthy so we can live longer lives. We try to eat well so we don't die quick. Um, we try to do a number of things just to prolong our lives. Here we get a picture that people will long for death to come. They will seek it. And death will flee from them. We looked at the description of this demonic invasion. We looked at the source from which they come. We looked at the target of their mission. But what's the point? What is the message that we get from the invasion of this this demonic army? There's two points of application we can take from it. The vision of this invading horde of locusts should be viewed as, as a warning that calls unrighteous people to repent. In the Old Testament, most of the time when God sent locusts 
even natural locusts, even the actual fly, uh, animal, little creatures, locusts. When God sent locusts to devour the land, it was always a, a way of calling people to repentance, asking people, challenging people to turn away, to leave behind their own ways of life and follow God. This vision of grotesque locusts in Revelation should alert people who live life without God to consider what is ahead of them. God wants the people of the earth to lack no clear warning. In the most high-intensity imagination possible, think of these grotesque, locust-looking, demonic creatures. Let no imagination be left behind. Let all the gears of imagination be used to stir you up. What's ahead is intense pain. Be warned. Thinking that you have a future that's bright and secure and fun apart from God is a lie. Friend, ask yourself, do you feel more safe? and certain in living life apart from God? To live life without being a part of God's people? To live without having the, the seal of God on you? Not having the seal of God upon us essentially means not belonging to God, not being recognized as one of God's people. Friends, take this warning seriously, especially if you are not certain whether or not you belong to God. If you are not certain whether or not you are one identified as God's people. Friends, if that's an uncertainty that you are dealing with this morning, well, friends, take this as a caution. Take this as a, as a serious warning. Deal with this matter. Don't leave from this place with this uncertainty unresolved. This vision of demonic horde of locusts shows also a second application, a second caution, that the demonic realm does not protect those who join them in opposing God. No, quite the opposite. The demonic world is a self-destructive world. The demonic forces that lure us away from God only do so to destroy us later. The demonic forces lure the earth away from worshiping God only to destroy those who dwell on it later. This army of locusts comes with, with crowns on their heads. Did you notice that? It's a strange way. Locusts with crown as of gold. They are pretending their own power. They are pretending that they have authority. And they do for a season. God, even Jesus says that this world is ruled by the king of darkness. There is an authority that these creatures, demonic creatures have. They keep it to themselves. And they use it only for destruction. But what a contrast between these locusts and the 24 elders around the throne of God who also had crowns of gold. But the 24 elders lay their crowns at the throne of Jesus, at the throne of God. But this army of locusts with their crowns are coming to destroy the earth. 
They come only to harm. What we have here, dear friends, is an exposure of the true color and nature and agenda of the demonic world. To follow something or someone other than God is to make side with a kingdom of darkness. But that kingdom will not be safe for us because the very forces of darkness seek to destroy the creatures who give themselves to it. Friends, there's no human being who has gone himself or has given himself to, to follow the, the agenda of the kingdom of darkness and to come out safe on the other side of it. Ask yourself, what are the areas of your life where you're tempted to think that the way without God is easier, it's more pleasant, it's more fulfilling? Yes, there is there are some crowns of gold on these locusts that might lure you to, to think that they're worth something. That they're going to share their authority with you. That they're going to give you power. That they're going to give you influence. There's something that draws you to these locusts when you look at some of the characteristics. But when you look at the whole picture, it's grotesque. It's, it's strangely evil. This grotesque picture should warn you recognize the true nature of the path of darkness, of living life without the light of God. This is what the fifth trumpet judgment does for us, to warn us, to warn us of the, of the painful, destructive nature of the kingdom of darkness that is ruled by this demonic uh, army. But notice, as horrible as grotesque as this fifth trumpet judgment is, it's just the first of the three woes. There's more to come. And, and, and a second woe is showing up in the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet, we see four angels who are given the authority to bring a devastating army um, upon the earth. The judgment that comes with the blow of the sixth trumpet is similar to the fifth trumpet in that we see another invasion. This time, though, instead of a horde of locust-like creatures that had demonic origins, the army of the sixth trumpet is led by four angels that have been bound, uh, which could be an indicator that this is also dealing with a demonic invasion. But notice that they're coming from beyond the Euphrates River. This is a little interesting and strange. Look at verses 13 to 16. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. What are we to make of this description? Well, there's a few things to, to observe. The voice that comes to release these four angels is a voice coming from the four horns of the altar before God. Now, the first time, by the way, this refers to the altar of God in heaven. The first time we heard a voice coming from this altar was when the souls of believers who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus were crying out to God 
how long, O Lord, until you will avenge our blood against the people of the earth? And now, from the same altar comes a voice that, that frees, releases these four angels. But by bringing the altar here together in, the same, in, the, in these two pictures, it's supposed to tell us that most likely this, this judgment of the sixth trumpet is an answer to the prayers of God's people for, for avenging their blood. Then we are told that the, the four angels that are bound are at the Euphrates River. The river Euphrates, Euphrates has symbolic uh, significance in the book of Revelation. The great river Euphrates marked the edge of the territory that God's people ever occupied upon the earth. The army that invades in the sixth trumpet is an army that comes from beyond that river. When, when God exiled his people in the Old Testament, into Assyria, and into Babylon. The armies that God used to take God's people out of their land were armies that came from beyond the Euphrates River. Even the the city of Babylon, which is in the book of Revelation, we're not supposed to read it as the actual city of Babylon. It's symbolic. It's a symbolic name, uh, meaning and referencing any city that opposes God. The two cities, uh, the, the New Jerusalem, and the city of Babylon are contrasted in the book of Revelation. This is a symbolic language. The city of Babylon, the actual city, was beyond the river of Euphrates. And here in the sixth trumpet, the, the four angels are, are bound at the Euphrates River, holding back an army that is ready to attack the earth. We see that this army is also not a natural army. It's not a normal army. It's not actual people. Uh, It's an army that is described in very strange ways. But before we look at the way they are described, I want to make a few more points. Uh, They are prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. That's a way of saying God has been preparing this invasion for a long time. But unlike the demonic invasion of locust-looking creatures, um, which invaded the earth, only to torment, not to kill. That was the locusts. The locusts were not sent to kill. They were sent only to torment. The invasion of this army is sent to finish the job, to kill people. But even their killing is only one-third of the earth's population. In other words, it's not the whole earth that will be killed by this army. It's a measured judgment. There is only a limited amount. God has decreed the amount of how many should be killed through this invasion of strange-looking army. Uh, We see the strangeness of their army in the way they are described. And actually, when John describes them in verse 17, um, he describes not so much the riders on the horses, but the actual horses. Notice in verse 17, This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Now clearly, these are not natural horses. Their description should not be taken literally. It's a symbolic description that matches with so much of the apocalyptic literature. The combination of fire, of smoke, and sulfur is significant. 
Because when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told that God rained fire and sulfur on them. Throughout the Old Testament, God's judgments included fire and sulfur. And we see that in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire, which is the eternal existence of of hell, the lake of fire burns with sulfur. But notice their description, the power of these horses are not only what they spit out of their mouths, but also what they have in their tails. For the, verse 19, for the power of the horses in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Friends, this army is demonic looking as well. The fact that these horses have tails that have Powers like, like, like snakes that bite reminds us, reminds us of the association of Satan with a snake in the garden. These are demonic influences that, that, that use these creatures to bring about not just pain but death. The description of this army should lead us to interpret this sixth army that comes beyond the Euphrates River or from there as symbolic. We should not wonder, is there a country beyond the Euphrates River that has like 200 million uh, soldiers that could come from there? And let's be looking in our world today for what kind of country could that be? Could it be China? No, friends, that's not the way to interpret this vision. Don't worry about thinking through that kind of language in this way. The point here, it's a symbolic imagery. It's a symbolic picture that God is going to allow a season when the demonic world would attack, would bring about harm, torment at first, and then death as well. And all this is under God's control for a limited time and for a limited space, location, just a third of the earth. It may sound a third of the earth is a lot. I know. But wait until you get to the last seven of the judgments when the whole earth will be affected. This is just a portion. So what do we learn from this warning as well? What do we learn from the sixth judgment? Actually, the best way for us to interpret the sixth judgment is to interpret it in light of the fifth judgment as well. And there are some verses that are given for us to understand what's the point of these judgments. Well, first of all, in terms of application, the aim of the sixth trumpet plagues have been to bring about repentance. The trumpet visions, as one commentator said, the trumpet visions put increasing pressure on the ungodly as parts of the created order suffer damage. The ungodly are, are tormented but not killed. And finally, some, but not all, suffer death. These warnings are designed to lead the people of the earth repentance. Now today, we often fail to understand God's call to repent. But God calls the people of the earth, even through describing such visions of grotesque attacks, God calls the people of the earth to repent. Sometimes we think that all that God wants from us is to accept that He exists, or to acknowledge and believe that Jesus died for us. 
we often think of faith as merely an intellectual acceptance of some truth. But here, we see so clearly that the response that God desires from the people of the earth is to repent. To repent means to turn the other direction. To turn from what? To turn from living a life without God, without caring about His ways. Or to to turn from living a life that assumes that just believing that God exists is sufficient. Friends, that is not sufficient. We need to turn away from that impression. To turn the other direction means to turn towards God. And such turning happens as we place our trust in Jesus for the salvation of our sins. Because Jesus, through His death on the cross, paid in full the penalty that our sins deserved. And friends, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, proving that Jesus is God. That Jesus paid in full the penalty of our sin. So that all those who trust in Jesus, who follow Jesus, who, who start looking more like Jesus because of their faith and their love for Jesus, all those will be spared the harm and the destruction that will happen upon the earth because of the demonic influences. Sometimes Christians talk about faith in Jesus without ever mentioning repentance. Have you ever considered that? That even when we give the gospel to someone, even when we speak what the gospel is and share and call people to consider what God gives us, the grace of of salvation, we actually, Christians, we often fail to even mention the word repentance. That should scare us. That should call us to consider what are we doing when we fail to actually call out to people to do what God calls them to do. Oh, friends, I pray that you would consider the the doctrine of repentance as, as an important truth, as an important call, both for your life if you're not a believer, both for your life, if you are a believer, to continue to live a life of repentance, but also, if you are a believer, when you share the gospel, call people to repent and tell them what that means. Notice what it means in Revelation 9. What does repentance look like in Revelation 9? Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Well, there's two things I want to say here. First of all, these plagues tell us that people, despite these plagues, would still choose not to repent. This is a sad story that it's possible to give someone all the warnings that you can give them, and still there's refusal to repent. But notice what repentance involves in these verses. It says, repent of the works of their hands. This phrase, the work of their hands, is often used in the Bible to refer to idolatry. So in other words, God calls people to repent from idols. This shows that a turning to God means a turning away from our idols. I love how the Apostle Paul spoke of the the gospel when in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, For they themselves 
report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you, speaking about the Thessalonians, about the Christians in Thessalonica, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Friends, repentance involves a turning from idols to serve God. Turning from living for our idols instead of living... Uh, turning from living for our idols and instead living to, to serve God. Friends, you may not have an actual statue that you bow down to, but what are the idols in your heart, in your life, that you are tempted to worship in the place of God? Let these judgments in Revelation 9 stir your heart to show you how serious is our need to turn to God in repentance from our idols. There's also something else that it says in, the, in this verse. That idolatry is actually connected with the worship of, of demons. Notice in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. We may not realize or think much about our idols, but idolatry, no matter what shape and form it takes, is connected with the worship of demons, even though we may not realize it. In the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses recounts the sin of the first generation of Israelites whom God killed in the wilderness, Moses says about them that they worship not merely idols, but that they worship demons. Even in Deuteronomy, the worship of idols... To fall in the trap of idolatry is to fall in the trap of the demonic world, even if we don't realize it. Friends, idolatry manifests itself in various ways in each of our lives. There's a few ways explicitly mentioned in this verse, in verse 21. I'll mention them, but realize this is just a sample. This is not all of it. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Here we see just a sample of some of the behaviors that showed their idolatrous lifestyle. It's not a comprehensive list. But we want to consider that even things, things like sexual immorality, we may say, you know what, we're clearly not going to go and kill people. Okay, I get that. Uh, we know we should not steal we, should, we know we should not steal. We know we should not go to, 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 to people who read uh, the, your future in their hands or try to, to bring up magical arts to, to affect your life. We know we shouldn't do that. What about sexual immorality? We consider that even that is a way of, for, of worshiping demons. And somehow even just the notion of sexual immorality has become so accepted even among Christians. And sometimes it's hard to call churches to even practice church discipline over sexual immorality because we think, hey, it's, we, sh- we shouldn't do that. We just, I mean, it's, it's okay. Everybody does this kind of stuff, right? Friends, God is telling us that the, the pagans, the nations of the earth, the people of the earth who did not listen to God, did not give up sexual immorality. By implication, that means we as Christians should. Repentance means turning our backs towards it. We should call each other against it. I'm so glad that our ladies are doing a seminar 
uh, a session in a few weeks on, on, on having a biblical understanding of sexuality so that we may understand what that looks like. We want to equip not just the ladies, but the men as well. Men, we want to equip you to fight pornography. We want to equip you how to fight the various lures of sexuality so that you don't fall in the traps of sexual immorality. Why? Because we want to be a people who are known for turning our backs against these things. Because the people of the earth who don't repent are described as those who don't give these up. Well, friends, it's sad. It's sad when after so much warning, the people of the earth fail to repent. You know what I'm even more sad about? That with so much warnings, oftentimes the people in the church also fail to repent. And oftentimes for the people in the church, the call to repentance oftentimes may feel legalistic or it may feel like it's against grace. Well, friends, we've got to wake up. The people of God who have the seal of God are not perfect people. I get it. We still fall into sin. We still fall for the lures of sin. But when that happens, we turn away. We, we, heed the, we heed the admonishment. We repent and live lives of ongoing repentance before the Lord. Oh, friends, one of the sober messages of these two judgments is that God tells us there's no safety on the path of darkness. The path of darkness the path of living life apart from God, without God, keeping God at, a, at an arm's length is a path that demons would love to join you in. They may lure you with their appearance at first, but be warned, their appearance is ultimately grotesque and destructive. They're there only to torn. They're there only to harm. They're there only to bring destruction. I pray that we, as God's people, would not fall for it. That we would be warned by it. And let the grotesqueness of these images give us the warning that we need to flee to God. If you're here this morning and you want to flee to God, come, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you what that means. But don't stay in the path you're in, assuming that all will be well. It will not be. And God gave us all the warnings we need for that. Would you join me in prayer?